Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. Let me explain uh, the scripture readings uh, that we read this morning just briefly. I picked both of those passages because they work off this analogy that we find all throughout the Old Testament between the Old Testament sacrifices and the end of the world. Of course, the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice is that it's a picture of the wrath of God that is due to a sinner. When we think of the Old Testament sacrifice, we think of its two elements. We think of the shedding of blood, and we think of the consuming of its body to ash by fire. And those are both pictures to us of what God will do to the unrighteous and to the ungodly at the end of the world, and in fact will do to this creation. He will destroy it, he will shed its blood, and he will burn it to ash and those, the point of those Old Testament sacrifices is to remind us that we desperately need a Savior. We need someone to stand in our stead to bear that blood shedding for us and to bear the hot wrath of God that is due to us and to our sins. And the Scriptures teach us that God has provided such a sacrifice. He has provided the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the substitute the atoning sacrifice for sinners, for all who will take refuge in him, for all who will believe in him and trust in him, they will be saved on that great day, and they will behold the glory of God as he executes his vengeance upon his enemies and theirs. And so that's a, both of those passages are suitable introductions to what we are going to be talking about this morning from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. In the passage before us, Peter is warning us that there is going to be opposition to this idea that God is going to destroy the earth, that Christ is going to come again, and that He's going to bring a total destruction by fire of the universe, and that He is going to hold the unrighteous and the ungodly and the scoffers and the unbelievers accountable for their sins. This comes as part of our series in 2 Peter. Now remember the context here. 2 Peter is about growth in the Christian life, and here we are in chapter 3, we're getting close to the end of the book, and Peter's point is is that one of the areas that we need to grow in as believers and as Christians is a spirit of hastening, a spirit of readiness, a spirit of longing and desire for Christ's return, which includes a spirit of readiness and a spirit of longing and a spirit of desire for this destruction of the world by fire, this destruction of the ungodly by fire. We need to be growing in a confident, certain, trusting, ready assurance that Jesus Christ is coming again and all of this creation will be turned to ash and the ungodly will be held accountable for their sins. They and their sin will come to a final and definite end. And we need to be growing in this expectation, the anticipation for it, readiness for it. We need, this, we need to grow in readiness for it because our natural temptation and our natural state is not to be ready for it, or to desire it, or to long for it, or to pray for it, or to hasten it. Our natural desire is that we love this world. We don't want to see it turn to ash. Our natural desire is that we love our sins. We don't want them held to an account. And God has changed our heart and we're thankful for that. But what that means is that we need to be growing in this Christian readiness, this Christian spirit of hastening of this day, praying to the Lord, come, come, come quickly. 
Let it be the day of vengeance and repayment and recompense in the cause of your people, Zion. Well, we've already looked at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 3, where Peter lays the foundation for what he needs to say about growing in this confident assurance, what we need foundationally, and what we need to take into the sermon this morning foundationally, basically, before we even get started talking about Christ's return and the destruction of the world by fire, we need to remember the gospel. And we need to remember that if we're in Christ, we are, we, we are loved by God. We are made holy and pure in Jesus Christ. We are both justified. Our consciences are cleansed. Our souls have been cleansed. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are baptized into Christ. And God has promised us a kingdom. And that kingdom is coming. He's promised us eternal life in Christ Jesus. And if we don't have those three things, then we are dead in the water. There is no growth in readiness or desire or longing for the return of Christ or for the destruction of this world. But if we know that God loves us and we are confident and assured of that by faith in Christ and that we are baptized and that the kingdom is ours and God is going to give it to us, then we have everything we need foundationally to get started thinking about what we need to grow in this readiness and this longing and this desire for Christ's return. But now here we come to verse 3 through 7, and as we've said, vital to this growth in Christian readiness for Christ's return and for the destruction of the world is an awareness of opposition to it. Scoffers will come, and we need to be aware of opposition to it lest we be carried away by it, lest we lose our trust and our hope in God in the second coming of Christ and the destruction of the world. The second coming of Christ and judgment and the judgment and the destruction of the world by fire is, for a believer even, a very scary thought. It's terrifying if we're really thinking about it carefully, and if you've never been scared of it, you really haven't thought about it. It's a scary doctrine. It's a doctrine that that raises lots of questions in us, uncertainties. What does this mean that the world is going to be destroyed? What does this mean for me practically? How do I live? How does this change my relationship to the world that I live in? Lots of big questions, which we're not going to touch on this morning, but we will be touching on in this series to come. It even is provoking to us, because our natural tendency is not to desire the destruction of the world. There's a natural resistance in our hearts because of remaining sin to this whole idea. And Peter is warning us and saying, you've got to be ready for this opposition for these scoffers who will come and the real temptation that they will be to you. It's easy as we think about the second coming of Christ and the destruction of the world to lose sight of the immense grace that's in it. The goodness and wisdom of God in planning the destruction of the world. It's in His wisdom that He's ordained this fiery death of the world and this total accountability and destruction of the ungodly. It's His goodness and His mercy and His grace, and we must not lose sight of this. If we're in Christ, that is a day of grace, brothers. It's a day of deliverance from sin and from the ungodly and from their scoffing. And so we must be prepared for this, and we must be aware of the opposition to it. We will not grow in readiness unless we are putting away the opposition that is inherent and that we encounter in the world against it. God has given us an excellent hope in the destruction of the world and the accountability of the ungodly. And we don't want to lose that hope. That hope is vital to our growth. We want to be growing in it. And if we don't have that hope, we will not be ready for his return. So let's take a look at our text. I'm going to read from verse 1 just for context. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the water and the, and the Word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Well, we can break this text up into three parts. In verse 3, we have the opposition. In verse 4 through 6, we have how we, to, we ought to answer the opposition. And in verse 7, we have the hope that God Himself will answer the opposition. Or we could put it like this. In verse 3, we have scoffers and they're scoffing. In verse 4 through 6, we have their bad arguments and biblical answers. And in verse 7, we have the gospel truth about second coming and the total destruction of the world by fire and the destruction of the ungodly with it. So in verse 3, we have the scoffers and their scoffing. Look at how Peter puts this in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Notice that Peter uses this language of knowing this first of all. What he means is of first importance. He's getting our attention here. He's telling us that we need to take this very seriously is what he's telling us. We have a temptation not to take it seriously. We have a temptation to scoff. We have a, tension, we have a, a, a natural tendency to, to, to take lightly or to discount or not to consider important the presence of scoffers and especially the thing that they're scoffing at, which is the second coming of Christ. I know that this is something that we all struggle with. It's not a doctrine that we typically think of. It's a doctrine that we're aware of. It's a doctrine that we all affirm. We all raise our hand and say, yes, praise the Lord, Christ is coming again. But it's not operative often in our lives. We don't take it seriously enough. And that's what Peter's pointing at here. He said, first of all, there's going to be scoffers. Your temptation is to discount this doctrine, to count it small and lightly, and to not think about it and not to make it an operative principle in your life. That's what he's getting at here. So he says, first of all, there's going to be scoffers. They will come with scoffing. <laughs> to scoff means to belittle something. It means to discount. It means to laugh at it or to reject it or not to take it seriously or to count it lightly. In the Old Testament, the common trait of the unbeliever and the wicked was that he was a scoffer. He discounted God's Word. He rejected it. He set it aside. He didn't take it seriously. Maybe he gave lip service to it, but he didn't engage with it in his life in a serious way. He's a scoffer. He's called the fool in the book of Proverbs. Peter here, first of all, has in mind scoffers. He's thinking about the false teachers. He's thinking about people who openly reject the doctrine of Christ's return or teach the people of God to reject it and not to take it seriously. It's not limited to false teachers in its application. 
There are, of course, false believers in our midst, people who don't take it seriously in their lives, and they can become a temptation to us. And, of course, each and every one of us is open to the temptation of following these scoffers because the temptations to take this, light, this doctrine lightly or not seriously is part of who we are or part of what it means to have remaining sin. The sin that dominates them is the sin that's still present in us kind of an idea. The scoffers do not take seriously the immense wisdom, goodness, and grace of God that is contained in this idea that Christ is coming again. He is going to turn this world to ash, and he is going to hold the ungodly and the sinner accountable for all of his deeds, and especially his scoffing at the idea of judgment. The believer needs to take this seriously. And we need to be able to recognize the goodness and the wisdom and the grace of God that's in this if we're going to grow in a ready anticipation for Christ's return. So scoffers will come. They'll come with scoffing. What is it that they are scoffing at? Well, we've already made it very clear that what they're scoffing at is the idea of total universal destruction of the world by fire. Or we could put it like this, a total destruction of the universe by fire. A turning to ash of all the things that are created, invisible and visible. Sometimes we call this the conflagration. Maybe you've heard that term out of context in the news these days by other religions. But the Christianity has this idea of sometimes the term is called conflagration. It's the idea of a universal destruction uh, of fire, uh, of the a destruction of the universe by fire when Jesus Christ returns again in his second coming. And let me briefly remind you, brothers and sisters, that this idea of the destruction of the world by fire in Christian doctrine comes along with the idea of the total transformation of the world at the end of time when Christ returns. And there's hope in that, and Peter's going to get to it, but that's not his point here. The conflagration is accompanied by renovation. There's death, destruction, and renewal. We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth. And we'll get to that in our series And that's very hopeful, and it's a wonderful idea. But keep in mind that Peter's point, particularly here, is on the destruction, on the conflagration, on the the destruction of the universe by fire. Judgment of the wicked. This is what scoffers are scoffing at. Yes, they're scoffing at Christ's second return in general. They are particularly scoffing at this idea that God is going to destroy the world by fire and hold the ungodly accountable for their sins. Now, as a quick aside, I want you to notice that these scoffers are going to come, Peter says, in these last days. What does Peter mean when he says the last days? This is an important idea. I'm going to ask you to turn to some passages with me and follow along here. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. And I know that this is a doctrine that you are familiar with and you understand, but it's good to have it reproved. It's good to go back over it and to hear it again. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 17, here we are. The context is Pentecost, the day in which the ascended Lord is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his church. And you remember the Spirit is poured out, and there are the tongues of fire, and the people are speaking in various languages and understanding a, a marvelous manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to mark this momentum, historical occasion in which the ascended Lord has poured out his Holy Spirit, keeping the promise of the whole Old Testament that God would pour out his Spirit upon his people when Christ came and won victory over his enemies. But notice how Peter interprets this event at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. 
Here's what he says. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When we read in the New Testament this term, the last days, it refers to the age ever since Pentecost. From Pentecost until the return of Jesus Christ, the last days began when Christ ascended and poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church. And Peter makes that explicitly clear when he says, this is what is said by the prophet Joel, in the last days I will pour out my Holy Spirit. Turn with me really quickly to Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2. Again, I know a verse that you're familiar with and a concept that you're familiar with. But it's encouraging to think about these things. These last days. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. The author of the book of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's referring to the whole Old Testament age. The age before Christ came. And how many ways God would speak through visions and through signs and through all of the prophets and through dreams and all of these various ways that God would manifest himself, even coming at Mount Sinai in Theophanies, all of these marvelous ways that God would speak to his people. But look at verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Again, the idea is that the last days of the New Testament is the New Testament era, ever since Christ has come. The age of the apostles, the age of the New Testament. These are the last days. Now, I love the way Paul puts this. So turn especially with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. I mean, it's just wonderful what he has to say here. He's speaking here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to the Corinthians, and he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Exodus, and he's talking about the people of Israel in the wilderness. And he's drawing out moral lessons and implications from it. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now these things happened to them, these, the children of Israel in the wilderness, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, for our instruction. He's telling us why Moses wrote the Old Testament and why the prophets wrote down their Old Testament prophecies. It wasn't for their sake. It was for your sake, Paul says. Your sake. Now, how does he define you? How does he define the New Testament church as he speaks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here? He says, on whom the end of the ages has come. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to be a New Testament Christian. You are one upon whom the end of the ages has come. The last days, Paul is saying, are here. And they are here now. It's wonderful. I just love the way he puts this. We don't always think about this as carefully as we should, brothers. Your reality in Christ today is the Old Testament believer's eschatological dream. The last days have come. Christ is here. He's ascended. He's ruling and reigning. He's poured out His Holy Spirit. He's gathering the nations in. There is nothing between us and eternity except for His return. There's no other promise to be fulfilled. It's all been fulfilled. The only one that remains is Christ's second return. Brothers, we are in a race and the finish line is right there in front of us. There are no more checkpoints. There's no more water stations. It's us and the end. That's what he's getting at. This is what Paul, this is why Peter brings out here in our passage, it's in the last days that these scoffers come. The closer that finish line comes, the louder those scoffers are going to get. It's wonderful. 
This brings a sense of joy to us and immediacy and urgency. And if we're in Christ, a cheerful sense of urgency. And if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, it ought to bring to a fearful sense of urgency. Because your doom is coming quickly. But God promises that if you believe in Jesus Christ and you trust in him, you will be saved on that day. Join the people of God in salvation. And know what it means to rejoice in the conflagration. Well, we need to understand their motivation, Peter tells us. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Why do they scoff? Because they're following their own sinful desires. They love this world. They don't want to see it end. So they ignore it. They put it out of their minds. They don't want to see you take it seriously. They want you to join them in their love for this world. And they love their sins that they indulge in this life. You know, one of the things I thought was wonderful, Jared, I'm so glad that you quoted from Revelation chapter 18, where the Babylon the Great has fallen. I know not all of you were in prayer meeting, but I don't have time to go there. But in Revelation chapter 18, there's this vision of Babylon the Great, this great city that's filled with wealth. It's also filled with harlots. It's filled with sin. It's filled with slavery and the bondage of human beings. And we're given a vision there in Revelation 18 that at the end of the world, it's going to go up in smoke. God's finally going to bring judgment upon that city. But what's beautiful about Revelation 18 is the way that it's depicted to us are the people who were members of that city, the weeping and the wailing and the crying as that city burns. Not the people of God, the unbeliever. Why? Because they loved that city. They loved the treasures of this earth and the wealth that they envied. They loved their sinful fleshly pleasures. And they weep, they wail as it burns with fire. But the people of God say, glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The day of God's justice has come. The day of vengeance has come. It's a beautiful picture. But this is what Peter's getting at. They follow their sinful desires. They are in love with this world and they are in love with their sin. That's why they scoff. That's why they take lightly the second coming of Christ. I hope that's a little convicting to you. (laughs) Because it's the reason you do. It's the reason why you're tempted to follow them. And I don't mean to discourage you, brothers, but remaining sin is a reality in the Christian life. And we have to be honest about that and confess it. I want you to notice briefly here the relationship between theology and holiness, just very briefly. These scoffers' love for sin corrupts their doctrine. And they corrupt their doctrine in order to have their sin. So just be aware of that as the way it operates in your soul. So what is Peter's overall point here, though, in verse 3 of the things that we've said about the scoffers and their scoffing in the last days? How do we tie all of this together with his main purpose, which is to help us to grow in a readiness for Christ's return? Well, the first is obvious. We need to be warned about the false teachers and the scoffers and the opposition because they can become a discouragement to us. They can become a distraction to us. We have to look at our own heart and be careful that we're not led astray to practice the same kind of scoffing, the same kind of belittling, the same kind of taking lightly or unseriously these things. Their lifestyle can become a temptation to us. The world is a tempting place. The pleasures of sin are tempting. We're vulnerable. So we have to be aware. We have to be careful. But notice what Peter's real point here is. His overall point here is that the evidence 
that Christ is coming again soon is the presence of the scoffers. <laughs> now, that's a one, now, just think about it. I'm laughing about it because I've already thought through it. It's a wonderful idea, isn't it? That's a beautiful concept. That's a liberating concept. That's an encouraging concept. That's a helpful concept. The same word that promises that Christ is coming again is, this, is the same word that promises that scoffers are going to come scoffing at it. Now, God has made true on His first promise the scoffers have come. You see it in your own heart. You see it in the world. You see it in false teachers and so on. Well, if He made good on the promise of the scoffers, brothers, you could be absolutely certain He's going to make true on His Word about the coming of Christ. The evidence for His return is the denial of it. The more denial of it, the greater the weight of the evidence against those who deny it. The very presence of the temptation to deny His second coming is a reaffirmation that it is coming quickly. That's a total destruction of the universe by fire. And in a a holding to an account those who refuse to take refuge in God and to believe in Jesus Christ and flee from their sins. The presence of the scoffers and the temptation to is the assurance that God will come and destroy them and put an end to them and put an end to the temptation and to put an end to the sin itself and to destroy it, and we can go further in the text to remake the whole world. It's the evidence itself, Peter is saying here. Scoffers will come, and God will destroy them. So there's so much grace in this doctrine. There's so much goodness. What wisdom in God, isn't there? The way He ordains things, and how helpful it is to His people, and how encouragement it is to keep trusting in Him and hoping in Him and knowing that He's planned this conflagration, as scary as it seems, as dark and devastating as it might seem. He's planned it for our well-being and our good. We go on to verse 4 and 6. We have the bad arguments and biblical answers to these scoffers. We can see their bad arguments in verse 4. This will be helpful for us. Here's what Peter describes their scoffing. He says, They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, this is the mindset of a scoffer. Where is Christ? I don't see a return. I don't see any evidence for a total destruction of the world by fire or a sudden or an immediate destruction of the world by fire. Where do we have in all of human history anything like that? Now, if you know the Scriptures, you think, well, there's a couple places that we could point to. But this is how they think. Let's unpack the way that they're thinking because, brothers, this is the way you're tempted to think. This is where they're going to trap you is in their argumentation and their reasoning. Notice how they rely upon rationalistic and evidentialist reasoning. They rely on human reasoning rather than Scripture. And Peter illustrates this for us very very clearly. A rationalistic argument is one that appeals to the ultimate authority of human reasoning. A naturalistic or evidentialist argument is one that appeals to the ultimate authority of a man's ability to interpret the evidence. The natural man looks at the world around him and says it's unreasonable to conclude that it's going to be destroyed. We have a a whole history of thousands of years that it hasn't been destroyed. It makes sense that if the sun rose yesterday and it rose today, it's going to rise again tomorrow. If it made it to its setting point, it's going to do so again tomorrow. Where is the promise of His coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's unreasonable to conclude it will destroy. There's no evidence that it will be suddenly consumed with fire. There is also implicitly here an agnostic argument, neither rationalistic nor evidentialist. But this question, where is the promise of his coming, can be taken. What's the point of it anyway? Even if Christ is coming again, even if the world is going to be destroyed soon, this is an unfair burden to place on me. It's forcing me into an extreme way of living. What do you want me to do? Just escape the world? And that touches on a really good question, doesn't it? One that we're going to be addressing later on in our series of how we as believers respond to this doctrine in, in, in the way that we live our lives in this world, in the transient world that we live in, and how we react to its transience. I can't know if Christ is going to come again. Therefore, I don't need to think about it. It's not important. It has no practical implication in my life. This is, this is the way these scoffers scoff. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now the Bible warns us about this way of thinking. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man. Its end is the way of death. And we have to be careful about this kind of argumentation. These, argumenta- this, these, these kinds of arguments are weak because they reject the authority, uh, the, the authority of God's Word. Where is the promise of His coming? There's a rejection of God's promise. This, of course, does not mean that we throw out reason itself or evidence or asking really tough or good questions like the agnostic might or the cynic. But we must not exalt them above the authority of God's word. The sin of the scoffer, the mistake that he's making is he's questioning God's promise. It's really simple, but brothers, it's powerful and it's important and it's helpful to us. Let me challenge you for just a moment. Are there ways that you think like the scoffer in your life? I mean, the way of thinking. Certainly about this doctrine, but are there other areas in your life? Let me ask you a question. Are you ever anxiously, sinfully worried about something? (laughs) Are you ever tempted to be unthankful and discontent because of the way God's providence is working in your life? I mean, those are just two simple, basic ways, brothers, that you will show in your own life the reasoning of the scoffer on a day-to-day, ordinary way basis. The person who's sinfully anxious is basically saying, I know better than God does. There's a way that seems right to me and I prefer it over what God has said. Same thing for the person who's discontent. And especially we have to look out for this when it comes to the second coming. Brothers, can we not trust God that He knows what's best for us? <laughs> that the conflagration, the destruction of the world, that the holding of the ungodly accountable and the sweeping of the way is a wonderful display of His wisdom and His goodness and His grace to His people who trust in Him. It is, brothers. And it makes us ready for it to come. Well, let's look at how Peter answers their bad reasoning, their bad thinking with biblical truth. Look, he calls them out for this. (laughs) He says they deliberately overlook. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. They willfully overlook. They willfully reject. What do they... uh, 
willfully reject. Well, they reject God's word. But he brings out two specific things. They willfully reject this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In verse 6, and that by means of these, the water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They failed to trust God's word. Peter answers them with God's word. He answers them with two places in God's word. Both of them are from the early chapters of Genesis. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter is basically making the point that the destruction of the world by fire is not that hard to believe because God has already done something like it twice. First, in the creation of the world out of nothing, ex nihilo. And second, in the flood narrative of Genesis chapter 6 through 9. So here we are in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Creation ex nihilo. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He's referencing here creation. He's especially referencing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, which reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, there was nothing except God, the ultimate being and source of all being. And then the Bible tells us in other places, especially Psalm 33, that by his word, the heavens and the earth came into being. (laughs) out of nothing, or that is by the Word of God. A wonderful, rich display of His absolute sovereign power. And as we look at that creation, His goodness. So this is what Peter means, first of all, that God has done something, a radical, immediate, unprecedented change in the state of creation. It went from a state of not being into a state of being. That's the way theologians put it. Non-existence into existence. Not there to there. He's wanting us to, to contemplate the immensity of this reality that God creates the heavens and the earth. It's tremendous. It's transformational. It's, 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 it's worldwide. It's universe-wide, of course. And it's a marvelous display of God's will and power, his sovereign will, and his almighty power. But look at verse 2, because he also mentions this as well. He says, out of the water, he formed the world by the word of God. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. So this world that God created comes into existence in what is defined for us as a kind of formless, watery deep. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we have the creation account, how God speaks into those waters, into the darkness and the formlessness of them. And he, in six days, radical transformations take place. Out of darkness, light. Out of ocean, land. Out of nothing, life. Blessing. Hope. Promise, immediate, six days short, unprecedented. And Peter's getting us to think about this. These scoffers don't know what they're talking about because they fail to take into account the Word of God, our source of truth, and the reliability of it. 
He's bringing out also that God did this by his sheer will. And I bring this out, brothers, because it's, again, it's a temptation that we have to think of God as if he were a force. We want God to be predictable. <laughs> we want to think that it, even if God is almighty and powerful and he's, and he's faithful and he's good and he's all of those things, that somehow I can manipulate him, I can control him. And Peter is reminding us that the scoffers throw this idea out. That the God that we serve is a God who has a sovereign will. And he is not a force. He is not an abstract concept. The Bible calls him the living God. And he's the kind of person that brings things that are not into existence. (laughs) And turns darkness into light by his sheer will. And whenever he wishes and whenever he pleases. And the implication is, is if he can bring it into existence like this, he certainly can destroy it if he so pleases. He's the Lord God. It's his creation. He does with it whatever he wills. And there's no one who can stop him. And there's no one who can question him. And so Peter points us to this radical change that's already taken place in the creation of the world. He's also hinting at how good God is in it. What a beautiful creation God made. How good it was. The result, the end, how trustworthy he is. And then he brings up the second point. The flood narrative of Genesis 6 through 9. And we see this in verse 6. And by the means of these, the water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now again, Peter's point here is that God has already destroyed the world once in judgment, and he saved those who trusted in him and took refuge in him and believed in him. It's reasonable to conclude that if he says he's going to do it, he can do it again. (laughs) He's already done it. He did it in the flood. You remember the flood narrative. This world that God creates falls into sin through Adam, and death enters the world and corruption, and people increase their sin, and it gets to the point where God is ready to bring judgment upon them, and so he pronounces a judgment upon the whole world. You know Genesis chapter 6. He gives mankind 120 years to repent, and he, and he saves Noah. He tells him to build an ark, and he brings the flood waters. And by those flood waters, Peter tells us here, he destroyed the world that then existed. Now that's powerful language, and I want to spend just a few minutes on it because I think it's interesting. Notice this language. You're going to have to look into verse 7 here. Look at how he compares this. He says the world that then existed. And then in verse 7, he's going to compare it to the world that now exists. Peter's drawing a sharp contrast between the world before the flood and the world after the flood. Even indicating here that there are two worlds. That the world that God created in Genesis that fell through Adam was transformed in the days of Noah through the flood. It was destroyed and made new. And in fact, if we go to Genesis chapter 8, and I did some studies on this, we don't have to go through all of the details, there's indications in the text that that's exactly what's being communicated to us, a kind of new heavens and new earth. If you think about this for a minute, it makes a lot of sense. If you think about Adam's world, this really briefly, and what we have recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1 through 5, we see these dramatic changes, right? Remember, 
in, in Adam's world, the world that did existed before the flood, people lived to be 900 years, the text tells us. And nobody ate meat. You might say, well, I don't know if I want to live in that world. I might give up 900 years for meat, but that's a joke. But then after the world, in Noah's day, people live 70 years by reason of strength 80. And everyone eats meat, or they, most people eat meat. <laughs> people who are healthy and survive eat meat. And we don't want to speculate on all the differences, but my point is, is that the text shows us that there's a, there's a difference in the order of the universe between Adam's world and Noah's world. And so Peter brings that out here for us. The world that then existed in the days of Adam was destroyed by water. Universal destruction by water. A holding to an account, a slaughtering of the wicked of that day. And out of it God created a new world, Noah's world. And he saved Noah alive. This raises the question of continuity and discontinuity that we'll be addressing. And just very briefly, it reminds us that there are similarities and uh, dissimilarities between uh, the world that is and the world that will be. But that's a discussion for another time. I'm just saying, Peter's bringing that out to us. He's raising that question here. As we think about these things, I want to also briefly touch on the idea that we find a couple of times, at least in church history, especially early church history, the analogy of the history of the world that we live in with baptism. It was not unusual, especially for early believers, to mark this analogy. And the reason I'm sharing it with you is it kind of gives us a perspective on the history of the world and these moments of destruction and helps us contextualize them somewhat in, I think, a helpful way to make the point that we can trust God in this. He's wise and he's good and he's full of grace. And this is for our good. But here's the idea. Here's the analogy. In Adam, the world was corrupted by sin and it fell into sin. In Noah, God plunged the world into water, into death, into judgment. When Christ comes again, in Christ, He will raise the world into the fiery light of Christ's glory and praise. And he will burn away the sin and the corruption and the ungodly who remain. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. I'm not being dogmatic on that, but it's a good way to think about it, I think. It helps us to contextualize it. It's a picture of baptism. But Peter's point then is that God has done this before. He has done it by his will. He has done it sovereignly. He's done it with great power. In each case with dramatically positive results for his people. In the creation of the world, the beauty and the display of his wisdom and the blessing, and ultimately the promise of the coming of Christ. In Noah, the salvation of Noah in the eight. And when Christ comes, uh, a final consummation of those concepts and ideas. In a total destruction of the scoffers, total destruction of sin, Total destruction, brothers, of the temptation and the occasions of sins that we face every day in this life. We can trust Him. We can hope in Him. So Peter's saying, first of all, you've got to be aware of the opposition. Good things to think about here. Then in verse 7, he makes his final point. We have the gospel truth about Christ's second coming in fire. We have the hope that God Himself will address the scoffers and the scoffing. Look at verse 7. But by the same word... The word that created the heavens and the earth, 
the word that predicted the deluge and brought it to pass. By the same word of the same God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now again, notice here that Peter does not argue from nature or from evidence or from reason or from necessity. He argues from the Word of God. He's looking at the promises of the Word of God. He's thinking about all of those places in the Scriptures that tell us, that God reveals to us, that He has stored up the world that now exists for fire. (laughs) Our trust is in the Word of God. We can see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, For a fire is kindled in my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. God's Word has reserved the world for fire. Psalm 97, verse 3, Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. God has reserved the scoffers and their scoffer and their scoffing for the fire, for destruction. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire, with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. We already read Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 17 through 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. The Word of God has stored up this world for fire. And we're just sampling, (laughs) we're just sampling the passages that we could look at. There's so many. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Total destruction. But for you who fear my name... The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of the burning of the earth and the burning of this Son of Righteousness. And the contrary effects that it has, the destruction of the ungodly and the renewal and purification of those who trust in God and take refuge in Him. Same fire, different results. See God's grace. See His wisdom. See His goodness. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God is burning the world, brothers and sisters, for your sake for your well-being, for your good. Jesus brings this out as well, or this destruction by fire, in Luke chapter 17, verse 26 through 30, where he references Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, and he brings out the idea of universal destruction by fire, and says in verse 30 of Luke chapter 17, and so it will be universal destruction by fire, 
on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And he speaks to us in that context of Noah who was saved in the ark. And of Lot. You remember Lot? We covered Lot. Who took his time getting out of the fire. Had to be dragged out by the angels. And God was not willing to bring the fire until he had repented, until he had come out. Destruction of the ungodly. Salvation for his people. 2 Thessalonians. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. The Apostle Paul speaks of this conflagration. God, through Paul, reserves this world for fire. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. He has primarily in mind here persecutions. We could extend that application to all of the hardships and difficulties that Christians face in a world filled with sin and sinners. The temptations, the scoffers, the false teachers. God is pleased to grant relief to those who afflict us who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at, among all who have believed in Him. And I read that to you, brothers and sisters, so that you can see the instrument of that fire is the Word of God, our Savior, the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. That fire comes with Him. That conflagration is the announcement of His personal presence. And we are caught up in the air. Paul is telling us very clearly so that we can watch it burn with Him so that we can behold His mighty power in the destruction of this world and the destruction of the ungodly, and by implication to watch Him renew it again in a new creation, in a new heavens and a new earth. We will have front row seats to the greatest show in the history of the universe. (laughs) We will see Christ bring the fire of destruction, and we will glorify Him, and we will marvel That's the promise. We will be relieved. God has ordained this for our great good. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, that means unrepentantly, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I've read all of these passages simply to make the point to you that God's Word has reserved this world and the ungodly for destruction by fire. This doctrine is wonderful and difficult, but it brings to us, brothers, liberty and consolation in the face of scoffers and their scoffing. It brings to you liberty, and I want you to consider this for just briefly, but just for a moment, 
Brothers, is there anything more liberating than knowing that both sin and the things that sin desires are quickly coming to an end? And that the temptations that we face in this life and the occasion for those temptations are quickly coming to an end. And they will be held to an account for what they have done. They are coming to a quick, a sudden, a total, and a full end. Brothers, that's reason to praise the Lord and to sing Hosanna. Yes, Lord, save, come. We are liberated. The war has been won, brothers. The battle still rages. It's almost over. If you're fighting, keep fighting. Hold your ground. If you fall, get back up and keep running. It's coming quickly. It's coming soon. Repent again. All scoffers and all scoffing will be brought to a final end for your well-being and for your good. It brings consolation. It brings us consolation because the scoffers themselves will burn. This does not mean that we delight in the destruction of the wicked, like we're getting some kind of sadistic or sinister pleasure in the burning of the flesh of God's enemies. Even God himself tells us that he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked as such, but his will is that they turn and live, and that they find faith and repentance in him and be saved. But brothers and sisters, nevertheless, we do delight in this. When they burn and when they are destroyed, they will be no more. They will be no more and we will delight ourselves in peace and righteousness and holiness. That's the message of the Scriptures. That's the hope that we have in this destruction of the ungodly. No more ungodly, no more ungodliness. That's our great hope. That's our desire. That's the good that God is bringing to us in all of this. Psalm chapter 37, verse 10 through 11 reminds us of this. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. You will not find him. But the meek shall inherit the land and the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. There is quickly coming a day, brothers and sisters, when the form of this world and the sinners of this world and their sins will be remembered no more. They will not come to mind, Isaiah 65, verse 17. You will try to find them. You will look for them. And you will not be able to find them. Like a dream that's passed in the night. Like a deja vu that has slipped through the fingers. <laughs> like nostalgia. Like the vapor of Ecclesiastes. The vanity and the smoke in the wind. It will be no more. And you will delight yourselves in the abundance of peace. And we praise God. He is good and He is wise. And we have every reason to hope in Him. And so let's conclude our message. God is bringing a destruction of fire. And He will hold the ungodly accountable. If you are outside of Christ, you need to know that God has stored this world up for fire. It's going to be destroyed. And you with it. He has stored you up for destruction with the ungodly and the unrighteous because of your scoffing, because you have taken this doctrine lightly and have not believed in it and have scoffed at it. The call to you today from this passage, if you're outside of Christ, is to repent of your scoffing 
and believe in Jesus Christ. And the promise of the Gospel is that if you do, the Lord will forgive you and He will save you from the destruction. Brothers, if you're in Christ, scoffers will come. Don't be discouraged by them. Remember that their very presence is the evidence that God is true and that He's coming again. Even your temptation is evidence that it's coming to a quick end and a sudden and a full end. If you're in Christ, God will destroy the scoffer. You therefore grow in grace. Put away your scoffing. God has planned the destruction of the world for your good and the destruction of the scoffer for your well-being. You will grow in readiness and longing the more that you trust and hope in God. Therefore, put away the opposition to it in your own heart and go to war with it. And then finally, let me just very briefly encourage you with some final words. Prize this wonderful message that God has stored this world up for fire (laughs) and judgment of the ungodly. Brothers and sisters, it is good news. It is gospel truth that God has already destroyed the world once. He's already done it. And we say amen. He's about to do it again, this time with fire. And all the sin and the size and the struggle and the opposition will be gone. And God's grace will be vindicated. And your hope and your trust in Him will be vindicated. And He's going to do it soon, which is what we're going to look at next week, the timing of his return. It is soon. It is not far off. So brothers, keep up your faith and keep up your hope in him and look for it. Scoffers will come with their scoffing, but God has promised the destruction of the scoffers and their scoffing.